0: The middle of our series, Born in the USA, The Life and Times of Daniel. And we're discovering the feel of Daniel's life and times can be very similar to the feel and times that we live in, even though there's a 2,600 year uh, separation between ours and his. You know, we all have seasons of life where there's nowhere to run. And I ain't got nowhere to go. We've all experienced those kinds of things. Yet, instead of just surviving, Daniel continually thrives in those circumstances. And that really is the lesson for this series, is that you and I can live in a world, have situations come our way when we feel there's nowhere to run and uh, ain't got nowhere to go, and we can find that we don't have to be trapped in those situations, but we can do more than just survive those situations, we can actually thrive in those situations. Now today, of course, we're celebrating Father's Day, and you might actually be able to smell that uh, celebration. Take a, oh, isn't that wonderful? You're smelling bacon, yes, that is right. You know, bacon is a very captivating uh, food, It takes the hold of a man's heart and gets him to uh, do all kinds of things in quest of the bacon experience. At least that's what happens in our life. And, you know, Saturdays wouldn't be Saturdays unless there was bacon with breakfast. And usually there's bacon with breakfast, and sometimes there's bacon with lunch. No, there's never bacon with supper. Oh, it's so sad. But at least two out of three ain't bad. So... You know, bacon is a big deal for many of us, and the smell, the sound of it crackling, you know, can get us pretty, ex- pretty excited. And, uh, you know, there are, uh, there are men, though, who go to unbelievable measures to have that bacon experience, and Michael Gary Scott is one of those kinds of men. Lords of the Ring Trilogy, if you see back to back. It's, really yeah. it's good. Yeah. Dunder
1: Mifflin, this is Pam. Pam, it's
0: Michael, help me, I need help right
1: now. Michael, what's wrong? I'm hurt, I
0: have hurt myself.
1: Wait, this is not looking good, Pam. Michael, do you need me to call an ambulance? No, I want what? you to pick me up. Okay, oh, <sighs> wait a looks... second, I thought you said that you were hurt. I am hurt,
0: I hurt I'm my sorry? foot. I'm sorry, Pam. I want to come to work, Pam. but I need you to come and pick me up. Okay, it's
1: Jim. Oh. Just say again, really loudly, uh, what happened?
0: I burned my foot very badly on my Foreman grill, and I now need someone to come and bring me into work. You burned your foot on a Foreman grill. I enjoy having breakfast in bed. I like waking up to the smell of bacon. Sue me. And since I don't have a butler, I have to do it myself. So most nights before I go to bed, I will lay six strips of bacon out on my George Foreman grill. Then I go to sleep. When I wake up, I plug in the grill. I go back to sleep again. Then I wake up to the smell of crackling bacon. It is delicious, it's good for me, it's a perfect way to start the day. Today I got up, I stepped onto the grill and it clamped down on my foot, that's it. I don't see what's so hard to believe about that. Could you you come
1: get me? Uh, I have to stay here and answer the phone. Okay, could someone come and get me please, Ryan? Michael, you should stay home and rest. No one wants to pick me up? (laughs)
0: there's more going on there (laughs) you know there is this tension in the quest for bacon now some are a little hesitant when it comes to bacon and and they feel just some resistance they feel that it it actually could be a little harmful and uh, J. pierce sears one of my favorite guys helps us understand this just a little bit Vegans have a survival reflex that gets triggered any time they see bacon. Due to their unique brain chemistry, their species thinks bacon's deadly.
1: Oh, mo-
0: it's very enjoyable to watch.
1: I know, I have to pay 50 cents for this call. I got unlimited minutes, it's-
0: They actually think they're gonna die. <laughs> All these great vegan foods. Now, those are some people when it comes to bacon. Then there are some that actually think bacon is like an elixir of life. And if you eat enough bacon, you'll live a long, long time.
1: Uh, I'm interviewing Ray. He is 96 years old. When were you born, Ray? 1920! December 10th, 1920. My question is for you, what's your secret of living so long to 96? What's your basic diet? Eat anything I want. <laughs> OK. <laughs> we're at Denny's. We're at, We're doing this interview at Denny's. So what do you eat at Denny's? Eggs and bacon and toast. Eggs, bacon and toast. Every every day? Yeah. Alright. And then uh how about exercising? Don't do any. E- no exercising? I don't do any. nothing. Okay. Alright, Ray. Well thank you very much for telling me how to live to ninety 97- I'm fifty four years old.
0: There you got it, you know, eggs, bacon, and you can live to 96, 97. So, you know, there's this little tension about this. And, uh, but bacon, seriously, is a real serious thing. Uh, it's very serious for most of us, you know. Uh, when it comes to bacon, uh, there's a number of facts about bacon, and uh, people of the second chance uh, put some of these facts together for us. Bacon is a $4 billion-a-year industry in the United States. More than 65% of Americans would like to have bacon named as the national food. There's chocolate-covered bacon, bacon ice cream, and even bacon s'mores. Think about that this summer. Now, when Wendy's Baconator six stripes of uh, bacon on a half-pound cheeseburger came out, they sold 25 million in the first eight weeks. It's said that the average American eats 18 pounds of bacon a year. Keith Schrader would like to see that top out at 25 pounds, but 18's a good start there. Astronaut Buzz Aldrin's first meal on the moon included bacon. And I don't know about this one, this is a little risky, I guess, but it's just not Americans that can want to consume bacon. In Canada, they say 43% of Canadians would rather eat bacon than have. So I didn't say that. I don't know about that, but that's what they say. So, you know, I I don't know about that, but uh, I will say this. Probably 30 pounds of bacon a year is probably not not a good thing. Uh, You know, if you push it too far, you're going to get yourself into trouble. Uh, Bacon abandonment could be a concern. Because when there's too much bacon in our lives, it, it, it actually clogs our artery, arteries. Uh, David Kessler, I don't know how he found this out, but he said, the combination of fat and sugar and bacon has a stimulating and sedating effect on our brains. Now, you're going to say, what in the world does that have to do with Daniel. What does it have to do with life and times of Daniel? Because I don't think Daniel actually was allowed to eat bacon. He lived in another time. We talked about that earlier on. But what it is is it ties into our last week's message, the first part of looking at success. And if you want to catch up on that, you can find that information online uh, in various places, and you can find out. You can also stop by guest services and pick up a CD. But we started talking about this idea of success You see, the drive for success can captivate like bacon can. Let's say 25 pounds of success is is probably okay. It isn't that bad for you. But we got to be careful. But abandon yourself to the concept of success, to the desire of feeling successful in any area of your life, and you may find that it actually clogs up your heart towards God. You see, success abandonment uh, can cause problems for us. Abandoning yourself to the savoring taste of your own so-called success, feeling you've arrived... Uh, might find you being captivated for it, and you might actually find it being your stimulation for your life, your drive for life. We've all seen people that just are driven, driven, driven for success, and it drives their life. It's their stimulant. Or there are those that, um, in a sense, rest in their success. They feel so comfortable and relaxed that their peace comes from their success. And this can happen in in various areas. This can happen in our finances. Uh, This can happen in our abilities. Uh, This can happen with what we've accomplished uh, this can happen at work. Uh, this can even happen with our families. Uh, some of us, uh, you know, seem to dodge a bullet and our kids turned out kind of okay. And uh, now we are kind of satisfied with that and that's and some satisfaction and all of a sudden uh, we get abandoned to that and it can start clogging up our heart. We rest in that. That can happen in our spiritual life. Sometimes you and I get to the place where we feel like we're, we're all set. Yes, we've said yes to Jesus. Yes, we've grown for a number of years. But now we kind of got the spiritual peace under control and we feel pretty good with it. So we just, in a sense, just sit back and relax in our success and it becomes a, it a sedates us, it gives us peace. So when it comes to this idea of success, There is a tie to this appetite, in a sense, for bacon. And we need to have a cautionary view of it. It doesn't mean we don't celebrate the victories in our lives. It doesn't mean we don't celebrate the wins. We don't celebrate our accomplishments and enjoy those. But there is this line where a little of a good thing becomes too much. And in the life of Daniel... In the times of Daniel, he continually experiences this, especially when it comes to King Nebuchadnezzar. In chapter 4, we've been looking at King Nebuchadnezzar and he uh, has this warning we looked at last week and basically he's given uh, a few months, 12 months to kind of come to terms with the fact that he's resting so much in his success. He's become uh, sedated by his success. Uh, He's become, uh, you know, stimulated by success. It's all about him. It's all about arriving and he feels pretty, pretty good with himself. And in Daniel 4:4, 4, 4, I pulled a couple of verses together. You may remember, it says, "I Nebuchadnezzar was enjoying times of peace and prosperity in my kingdom and palace. I was taking it easy without a care in the world." And he just kind of was relishing, rolling in, enjoying his success. And later on, 12 months later, after Daniel has already warned him that this has gone a little bit too far, it's starting to clog up his heart when it comes to his uh, connection with God, he's told this, he's told that it's going to be all taken from you, you've got 12 months to, or he doesn't even say how long he has, he just says now, and he takes 12 months and doesn't really do anything with it. And then we see another moment where we're brought into Nebuchadnezzar's mind, his heart, and he says this as he's walking around the rooftop of his palace. As the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, "'Is this not the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty?' You see, King Nebuchadnezzar very obviously lets success run his life, and eventually it ruins a period in his life. He went too far. And this doesn't just take place for the person who's really external with their success. They wear it on their sleeve. This is for all of us. Some of us, in the quietness of our own heart and soul, feel like we're all set, and that's not to feel, not to have any self-confidence, but we feel we're all set to the degree we just, we just pull back, and, and, and we feel pretty good about the way we are, and fortunately, in our lives, there's some other people we can see around that aren't doing as well as us, so we feel really good. We go, well, look at them. I've, I'm okay. Yeah, yeah, I haven't arrived but I'm not trying to grow in any area either. Well, that kind of means you think you've arrived. And we find ourselves Christ followers and those just trying to figure out who God is. We find ourselves edging God out. We saw this last week, and that's ego. We, we edge God out. We feel that we've made our life ourselves. And 1 John, one of uh, Jesus' friends writes this, wanting your own way wanting everything for yourselves, wanting to appear important, has nothing to do with the Father. It just isolates you from him. That's a warning. That's basically the same warning King Nebuchadnezzar got back in the Older Testament, that when Nebuchadnezzar, it's just about you, wanting your own way, wanting everything for yourself, wanting to appear important, it has nothing to do with your heavenly Father. It just isolates you from him. And what's so subtle about this subject is each one of us can come up to the edge, go over the edge, and be sophisticated enough that we think nobody notices. And maybe nobody does notice. But there is one person who notices. One person that realizes you actually think that you have pulled yourself up by your bootstraps all by yourself. Last week, we said it in three ways. We said that makes you comfortable and smug. Whenever we get comfortable and smug, there's a part of us that just stops growing, stops growing. In previous weeks, we've talked about always being a person that's growing. doesn't matter what age you are. If you're 80, continue to grow, learn, expand, be all you can be wherever you be. Comfortable and smug, success, bacon—it's—it's—it's it's, it's sedated you, or it's stimulated you because you just keep driving for it and driving for it and think you can get it all on your own. Then there's also this idea of self-satisfied and indifferent. We talked about that the first week, that we just are, are satisfied with ourselves, and we're, we're indifferent. We, we, we look across the canvas of our world, and we're indifferent. We feel good, and we don't care about other things. We saw last week that, again, uh, some of the answers, and we'll look at that in just a minute, is that, that uh, King Nebuchadnezzar was to, to look at others, not just for his own interests, but we can become very isolated, very insulated from that. Sometimes we watch the news in the evening and we see all the hard things that are going on in our world. And in the middle of that, we're a little judgment to those people experiencing those hard times. Well, if they would just kind of get their act together, it wouldn't be that way if they just didn't break that law. they didn't. And there's an indifference there. We've isolated ourselves so it doesn't touch our heart. We've settled in. We feel successful. We feel self-satisfied. And then we live on borrowed time. We live on borrowed time in such a way that that we know this. God speaks to to our hearts. I said last week, uh, when was the last time, as you're a Christ follower, that you repented of something? I mean, something obvious. Are you the same person you basically were six months ago, a year ago? Or are you growing, not to earn God's love, but to express your love to him? Are you, in a sense, living on borrowed time? Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, it was so obvious. Daniel comes, says the things we talked about last week, and he waits 12 months. And we don't know if he would have waited 24 months, three years. But then God steps in. Daniel's advice to him was this. Make a clean break of your sins. We talked about that. You're being out of step with God, being self-centered, not functioning in the things that is his preferred will for your life. We disobey. And start living for others. That was the prescription for Nebuchadnezzar. You want to have victory in this area of success. You don't want it to grab your heart. You want to be successful, yes, but you don't want it to take over your life so it edges God out? Then look at your misalignment with me. Look at your sin and start living for others. Take your eyes off yourself and put it on somebody else. Use who you are, this great majestic king. Leverage it for somebody else. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar had unbelievable resources at his fingertips. You and I may not have those same kinds of resources, but the advice is still the same. Take your eyes off yourself, off myself, and use what you have, who you are, for others. Can't tell you exactly what that looks like for each one of you, but it looks like something. It's possible to take your eyes off yourself and look at others, and you can still be successful, you still can uh, be thankful for those wins in your life, But they can't captivate you to the degree that it's your drive in life and your peace in life when you look for others. And then you will have a good life. Well, if there could be any better carrot at the end of that, then you'll have a good life. If you wonder, is my life good? Or if you think your life isn't good, I think this prescription can be written to all of us: break from your sins, it's a process. The continuing prophecy. You never arrive. Live for others, not for yourself. And then you'll have a good life. Pull those two things out in the beginning, the two circles, and you don't have a good life. You get caught up with that. Came across this quote, and I changed a little bit to go with what we're talking about, but ego is a form of cosmic plagiarism. Claiming to be the creator of something that is essentially a gift. Let that settle in. Ego is a form of cosmic plagiarizing. Claiming to be the creator of something that is essentially a gift. Who you are, what you have, is a gift from God. And when you and I claim that we authored that in our life, it's plagiarism. Any ability, any skill, yes, you may have developed it, you may have engaged in it, yes, but it started with something, and it was given to you and me. So for any of us to walk into a place and to look at others and think that we've arrived and they need to get on the stick and to kind of take credit... For our abilities, our strengths, our, our mind, our capacity is, is, is plagiarism because God gave us those things. He made us that way. And it's, yes, it's a gift. And it's a gift to be cherished, it's a gift to be grateful for, but it is a gift. I remember, especially as a youth pastor, when I would see kids bullying the weaker kid in the high school. And the mean Dave Spencer wanted to go in there and thrash those big kids because I was definitely bigger than they were. Because the only reason they were bigger than Lonnie was because Lonnie was born that way and they were born that way. Unacceptable. Makes me angry, even to this moment, that someone, because they have better resources, better abilities, better whatever, takes advantage of someone who has less and feel superior superior to it. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And yet we can do it subtly. We can dress it up. For those of us who are Christ followers, We can dress it up in our Christian ease. And we can walk in and we can see people and we can just feel like, yeah, I'm so happy I'm not like that. So I, you know, I don't have that problem. You know, well, I made those decisions when I was younger, and now I'm living in the wake of it. Absolutely true. But that starting point in your life was a gift. And maybe they didn't have that gift. Or maybe they did have that gift and they blew it. But rather than having a sense of arrogance and success, I've arrived, you haven't, I've done it all. Whew. Don't want to have to answer for that. Whenever those thoughts come my mind, I go, push that out. Push that out. That's Plagiarism with a gift that was given. You see what happens to Nebuchadnezzar. Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You have been driven away from the people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and give them to anyone he wishes. It's amazing. What would it take? What would it take for you, for me, to really live in the acknowledgement that the Most High has been sovereign in who you are and what you have? What would it take? Would it take seven periods of time? They might have been seven years. They might have been seven seasons. It doesn't really matter. It was more than a week. Seven. What would it take? What would it take? And it's not to beat you down. It's to embrace and be thankful and to live that good life that God wanted for even Nebuchadnezzar. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from the people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails, like the claws of a bird. Fortunately, fortunately for Nebuchadnezzar, fortunately for you and me, there's recovery after failure. There's recovery after failure. I don't care who you are. Nebuchadnezzar had done horrible things Vile things, practiced injustice, was a super big bully to people, to nations, to to Daniel's family, yet there's recovery after failure. If you're far from God, or that's what you feel you are, or if you've never uh, opened your life up to God, if you're just trying to figure that out, if you've tried to walk with God for years and years and years, and you're in a low part, or you've been doing pretty well, but every once in a while you go, ooh, where did that come from? There's recovery after failure. Because Nebuchadnezzar's own words, he says, God knows how to turn a pure person into a humble man or a humble woman. Now, at first glance, you say, oh, that's to put them down. That's to break them. That's to punish them. You're proud. I'll knock that. I'll pull that rug right out from under you. No, no. In a place of humility is a place we are not edging God out. So I am thankful, not always in the moment, but I'm thankful that God knows how To turn a proud person into a humble person. I'm thankful for that. That is a gift. That is wonderful that He does that. Because out of my humility, I can make a break from sin. Out of my humility, I can be a benefit to others. Out of my humility, I can walk and respond to God. That's awesome. That offer is for every person in this room. That offer is for every person in whatever stage or age you are in. That offer is for all of us, wherever you're at. And the only person who knows where you're at is you. Because most of us can dress up the outside well enough that those closest and those around us have no idea where we're at. But recovery is possible. In a sense, Nebuchadnezzar gives us a model of how it happens in his life. I don't like step-by-step-by-step, but it gives us some things to to think about. The first thing is that he looks up. He looks up. Verse 34, the first part of it, says this, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven. Twelve months in, or no, twelve months from when he had his moment, but seven time periods. Something happens and he raises his eyes towards heaven. And that is symbolic for his acknowledgement that I need to look to somebody else. I'm not the majestic one. I'm not the one who's created my life. All these amazing things. I've built this kingdom, this empire. It's the grandest on the planet. Realizes he has to look up. There's a time in each one of our lives where we start by looking up. And I want to say, as we talked about repentance last week, I think it's a regular event. I have to regularly stop where whatever's going on in my life and look up. I, Nebuchadnezzar, raise my eyes towards heaven. One of the psalmists writes this. It's not David, but he writes this. I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? And it's interesting what this means is on the mountains, on the hilltops, there are all these shrines to different gods. And this person looks up to the to the horizon, he sees those shrines, and he doesn't look to those shrines for his answer. He looks to the Lord. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot sleep. He will not, he watches over you. He will not slumber. There comes to be moments where I have to look up to heaven and I have to realize it's not my finances, it's not my job, it's not my abilities, it's not my capacity, it's not my money, it's not even my wife, my family. It's God who gives me my. He may use those things, but they're gifts. It's God. They're from his hand. So there comes to be a point where we we look up. Life is humming along. And sometimes life just keeps humming along. And life is good and life is sweet. And, 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 And God hasn't knocked on our door and said, Hey, I know how to make a proud person into a humble person. Hopefully you catch this before the bottom drops. Isn't it nice that we can learn from somebody else's lesson rather than have to make the mistake ourselves? I have a friend who one time wrote in a book, his, his coach asked him, I hope you are not one of those kinds of people that needs to learn everything the hard way. Do you have to fail at everything? Go, oh, I guess I can't do it. How many times do you have to touch the stove and know that it's hot? Wouldn't it be better if you could just say, the stove is hot and never touched it? touches. So this idea of looking to the mountains, it's not the things, it's not the tools in our toolbox, it's not our abilities, it's God. So when we're going to recover, it begins with looking up to Him. What would it take for you to take a fresh look? When was the last time you really looked? Are you just in the rhythm of church stuff? You're just in the rhythm of life. You kind of got it. yeah, there's some bumps in the road, but you can handle it, and it's no big deal, and it's just life. But uh, what would it take for you to, with fresh eyes, look up? Does it, would it take the, the bottom of your world just dropping out? Or, or can that happen beforehand? Can you be in a regular routine of looking up? That's why we talk about spending time with God on a daily basis. That's looking up. That's why we talk that it's important to come on a Sunday morning, assemble with a bunch of believers, so you look up together. That's why we talk about community groups, so you can look up. That's why we want you to have experiences where you come to the end of yourselves. That's right. We go on missions trips to Honduras and other places and get involved because we want you to be put in situations where you've got to look up. Because looking up should be a rhythm of any Christ follower. And if you haven't said yes to Christ, if you're just trying to figure out who he is, your relationship with him starts by, by looking up. Then there's also this idea that we, we need to wake up. Nebuchadnezzar says it this way, I was given back or given my mind back. And that caused him to wake up. He was given his mind back. He, he saw what was really going on. He realized that the prodigal son, some of us are familiar with this story, the father or the son rejects the father's ways, goes off on his own, takes his gift, takes his inheritance, takes his ability, and goes and lives his own way. Some of us are doing that. We take our gifts, we take our abilities, we take our capacities, and we're living our own way. And all of a sudden, the bottom of life drops out. And we have this scene where he says, when he came to his senses... He said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. It's an indicator. It's an indicator that you and I need recovery time when we're starving to death. When we're starving to death spiritually, when things are drying up, it's an indicator we need to look up and then wake up. This isn't in your notes, but I love what Isaiah says, and I love it in in Eugene Peterson's paraphrase. Hey there, are you thirsty? Come to the water. Are you penniless? Come anyway, buy and eat. Come buy your drinks, buy wine and milk without money. Everything is free. Why do you spend your money on junk food, your hard-earned cash on cotton candy? Listen to me. Listen well. Eat only the best. Fill yourselves with only the finest. Pay attention. Come now. Listen carefully to my life-giving, life-nourishing words. Wake up. Wake up. Smell the coffee. Buy what's good. Stop spending your life on junk food. Going back on to Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar raises his eyes and he's, sanity is restored. Then I praise the Most High. I honor and glorify him who lives forever. His dominion is eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the people of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done? I wish we had time to totally unpack this, but I want to give you four thoughts about this. First of all, is that Nebuchadnezzar realizes that God's rule will never end. There are moments where we think he's not ruling. There's moments where we see things happening in our own life, we see things happening worldwide, but his rule will never end. And Nebuchadnezzar had to realize my rule will end, but his won't. I might as well get following the guy whose rule rule will never end. He also realizes that God's approval matters the most. It's not people. It's not what people think. You need to be aware of what people think. You don't need to be in their face. We've talked a lot about that over the years. But God's approval matters most. Also a good reminder when when times are tough is that God's power is unlimited. No one can hold him back. No one can tie his hands. When he's silent, it doesn't mean he's still. God is on the move. His power is unlimited. Nebuchadnezzar realizes that. He also realizes that God's decisions are right and just. Right and just. And for Nebuchadnezzar to say that when he looked at his world, pretty unbelievable that he said he could have left that last one out. Sometimes we have to hold on to that. We need to look up. We need to wake up. And we need to realize who God is. Even in the moment when we don't get it, we can't put things together. We have to rest, not in our success, not in our abilities, not in our prowess as a person, as a human being, but we rest that his decisions are are right and just. And just naturally, I don't think this is manufactured. I think this is an overflow. He looks up, he wakes up, and then obviously he speaks up. And Daniel 4 starts with a summary statement. He starts by speaking up. He says, King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth... Peace be multiplied to you. It seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders the Most High God has done for me. It's just, it's just natural. When you and I look up, when you and I wake up, it should be natural that we speak up. Not in a defying, not in a demanding our rights, but we speak up because we start to point to all he's done for us. If you've said yes to Jesus, if you know him as your personal savior, if he's joined your life through the Spirit, you have much to be thankful for. And that should just be dripping out of who we are. Our conversations ought to be seasoned with that, not manufactured just because it's who we're in love with. I love to ski. I love Starbucks. You hate me talking about that. I love that team. I won't even say their names. You hate me talking about that, but I almost can't keep it inside because I love those things. I wish they would do some better things. for bed. anyway, that's, I won't go down. But <laughs> God's done so much. If you're really captivated by that, it should just naturally flow from the pores of your life. You almost shouldn't have to take a class on on sharing your faith. You should just do it. Whatever you love, if it's a sport, if it's an activity, if it's computers, if it's horses, if it's farming, if it's guns, whatever you love, you talk about. No one has to say, oh, I think you should talk about your collection of blah, 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 blah. No one says that to you. It should be natural. Peter says this, but in your heart revere Christ as Lord. Again, I think that's the starting place. You say, "Boy, it isn't natural." You need to ask yourself, "Do you revere? Do you respect Christ as the Lord of your life?" When you do that, then life starts to unfold this way. Then you're prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have. Do you have hope? Do people say, there's a hopeful person, not a make-believe person, not a Pollyanna person, but there's a person that's, that's, that's hopeful. Where does that hope come from? It's a dark world. Look what they're going through. Where does that hope come from? It comes because they've revered Christ as Lord in their heart, in their soul, and then do this with gentleness and respect. I hate to say this, but... So hard when someone is manufactured and pushed and pushed their faith on someone else so much that when I'm getting to know them, I have to break through a barrier because they were, it was, there was no gentleness. There was no respect communicated to that person. One time I was had an extra neighbor. He was a weatherman on the local uh, Fox channel and we would work out together, and we would go to this gym and all this kind of stuff. And, and uh, he definitely wasn't into God things and was a little sarcastic to that. But one day he came up to me, and he says, Dave, you know what I love about you? This one thing. I'm like, okay. He goes, that you haven't tried to, uh, you know, you haven't tried to get me to convert. I said, what are you talking about, Bill? He says, yeah, and I'm not on my case all the time. But you know what's interesting? That same guy, before we moved, came out and helped me paint my little deck steps, and he started to ask me spiritual questions maybe a year or two later. Why? Because I had gentleness and respect. And I didn't have to figure that on my own. I could embrace the Holy Spirit that lives in my life, and at the right time and the right way, that could just drip from the pores of my life. Awesome when that happens. Awesome when that happens. I'd love to tell you some other stories locally, but confidential at this point, but this kind of thing happens when you just let it drip from the pores of your life. Because again, God knows how to turn a proud person into a humble man or woman. And that's fantastic news. Because he can take you where you're at in your self-satisfied spiritualness and he can take that and he can make you a humble person. He can change you he can change me, and he continually changes me. I look forward to seeing what new thing he does in my heart and my soul in the next six months. I've got to be a growing person. I've got to be a different because I'm not self-satisfied in who I am. And I hope, I pray, you aren't either. You see, humility is a gift. Humility will get you out of what ego got you into. Probably heard that before. Humility will get you out of what ego got you into. So humility is not something to run from. It's not being a doormat. When you're humble, it opens the doors to all kinds of things. As we already said, we start with this idea of how do we say yes to Jesus? We need to admit that uh, we have a need. We need to admit that uh, we have this thing, sin, and we need to be connected to God through Christ. We need forgiveness. We believe, we believe that Jesus died for us, gave us new life in him. It gives us forgiveness so we can start this new path in our lives. And we choose to invite him into our lives as the one we're going to follow. We're not going to do that perfectly. We're not going to get it all together, but but there's going to be be two steps forward, one step back, but we're on that path. We're traveling in that way. We're growing. We're converting. We're changing. We're repenting. Now, every week in your program, you get something called a connect card, and I encourage you, if uh, the Lord is speaking to your heart, to turn it over and look on the other side, and you'll see this area that says, next steps, where am I, where I want to be? And you might look at that and say, wow, one of these, these, one of these speaks to me. I, I want to begin a personal relationship with Christ. Please tell me more. I'm just beginning in my relationship with Christ. What's my next step? The list goes on and on, different things. I encourage you, don't, don't just have God knock on your door, hear what he has to say, but take the next step. So next week when you're here, you're not in the same place you were this week. You might be in the same seat, but not the same place spiritually. Change, grow, let humility do its work in all of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the story of Nebuchadnezzar. We thank you for the way Daniel interacts with it, and we thank you for the gift that Daniel's able to speak into this king's life. King Nebuchadnezzar doesn't respond until he has to, and then his response gives us a road map of how to respond to you. Lord, help us to take these things and integrate them into life so that we can be humble before you, so we can follow your lead, so we can live the good life that you desire for us. We thank you that there is recovery after failure. And no matter where we're at, that offer is good for all of us. Thank you. We ask all of this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.